This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. It's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Crisis pregnancy centers provide counseling and other prenatal services from an anti-abortion perspective. Their supporters say they help ensure that pregnant people know the risks of abortion. Advocates uh, of uh, abortion rights say the information they provide can be misleading or have no scientific basis. As Ali Rogan reports, there's a debate over federal aid for these facilities. In the United States, so-called crisis pregnancy centers are nothing new. The first one opened in Hawaii more than 50 years ago. But after the Supreme Court ended the constitutional right to an abortion, these largely unregulated centers have seen renewed support and attention. According to analysis by the group Reproductive Health and Freedom Watch, which supports abortion rights, anti-abortion pregnancy centers brought in at least $1.4 billion in revenue in the 2022 fiscal year. That includes at least $344 million in government grants. There are an estimated 2,500 such pregnancy centers around the country. In comparison, about 800 clinics providing abortion care were operating before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Carter Sherman is reproductive health and justice reporter for The Guardian. Thank you so much, Carter, for joining us. Tell us a little bit about how these centers work. What sorts of services do they provide? So the point of a crisis pregnancy center, which is often known as a anti-abortion center or even just a pregnancy center, is to convince people to continue their pregnancies. And they offer services like pregnancy tests. They sometimes do medical services like ultrasounds. They will also give out goods like car seats or strollers. Now, the thing is that even when they do provide these medical services, many of these facilities are not actually medically licensed. So they are not burdened by the kind of limitations that medical providers face. The other thing about these centers is that they are often staffed by volunteers. They're usually faith-based. And so that creates issues for courts that might be looking to further regulate them because judges are very wary of treading on these centers' First Amendment rights. So when someone does enter one of these crisis pregnancy centers, what sort of interactions are they likely to have with these volunteers? I think the interactions can really vary a lot, but something that has come up again and again from people who go into these centers is that they walk in not necessarily knowing that they are not in an abortion clinic. You know, these centers, according to abortion rights supporters, will oftentimes set up shop very close to an abortion clinic. They will have names that include words like birth or choice or the sort of things that we tend to hear from abortion rights supporters. And in reality, again, these are centers that are trying to convince you to continue a pregnancy. What sort of people do centers like these target? These centers offer uh, usually free services, and so that can be really appealing to people who are low income. And we do know that, at least prior to the overturning of Roe, most people who get abortions are low income because it is so difficult for people to afford pregnancies in this country. So why are these centers receiving more funding now? Well, since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the anti-abortion movement has really framed crisis pregnancy centers as the place to go for women who might otherwise have wanted an abortion but are now in a situation where they have little choice but to give birth. And state governments, particularly the governments of red states, have really agreed with that logic. We know, for example, that since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, at least 16 state governments have sent more than $250 million worth of taxpayer money to programs that support crisis pregnancy centers. 
I think in the coming years, we are likely going to be seeing even more funding. So tell us a little bit more about the breakdown of what we do know now about how these crisis centers are getting their funding. Is it coming from the federal government, state and local governments? What does that allocation look like? It can really be a mixture. Some of the money that flows from the government to these crisis pregnancy centers is ultimately from the federal government. We know that the state governments will take the money that the federal government gives them for things like temporary assistance to needy families and direct that towards programs to support crisis pregnancy centers. And there's now a debate happening between the White House and Congress over whether temporary assistance for needy families should continue to be used for uh, crisis centers. What is the status of that debate? Temporary assistance for needy families is a program that we would tend to understand as being a part of welfare. It is money that the federal government will give to state governments that they can then disperse for various aims to help families that are in trouble. And one of the goals of Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or TANF, is to help prevent out-of-wedlock pregnancies. Now, the Biden administration has said that, you know, by the time someone comes to a crisis pregnancy center, they already suspect they're pregnant. And so it's actually not an aim of a crisis pregnancy center to prevent an out-of-wedlock pregnancy because the pregnancy has already occurred. The Biden administration introduced this rule. The Republicans in the U.S. House have responded with legislation that would block HHS from effectively making that rule. That bill did pass the House, but given Congress's general state of inaction and polarization right now, it is very unlikely that that bill will ultimately become law. Right. Likely something we're going to see continue in state houses, though. Carter Sherman, reproductive health and justice reporter for The Guardian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Wondery. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved, the Underground Railroad. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them faced terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+. Plus.